Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the uh, Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Connell Fullenkamp. He's a professor of economics at Duke University. And we're going to talk about uh, financial market development and regulation of financial markets. So, Connell, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. If you would, uh, you know, I haven't spoken to tons of economists and I know some things about finances and fiscal policy, but but what's your uh, research and your work about? So with with respect to finance, I do a lot of research on thinking about just financial market development, how and why financial markets develop and in many cases fail to develop. Um, And that's come out of a lot of the work that I've done with colleagues at the International Monetary Fund. Um, We do training of uh, government officials around the world about financial market development. So we've learned a lot through experience and kind of case studies. And uh, I also do a lot of research on regulation, trying to think about uh, how regulation affects financial markets and trying to think about how to design better regulations. So that's that's really what the focus of my research. So what kind of financial markets do you look at? You look at countrywide, worldwide, you know, uh, particular commodities. I mean, what, what do you focus on? Sure. Well, we usually look at look at a country by country and you know, we, we look at just about everything we can. The, the, if you look at financial market development globally, in most countries, the banking market is fairly well developed. And in fact, in most countries, the banks are kind of the dominant financial institutions. So when we talk about financial market development, we're really talking about trying to develop a bond market, a stock market, and perhaps even derivatives markets. Okay. So um, again, is there a particular country that you look at as a model, or do you compare amongst the countries? Uh you know, what's happening financially in the markets? Like, sure. what's your, what, what are you trying to figure out? Sure. Well, we're trying to figure out really, there's a big question of it, how much and, or even whether governments can, uh, can foster financial market development. So, you know, if we take kind of the ideal case is the U.S., we have these really well-developed, really deep, really broad financial markets. And, you know, they, they didn't come from nowhere. And so we're, we're thinking about the U.S. case and how much that can be replicated, if at all, in other countries. So we're looking at individual countries. Um, uh, we usually look kind of regionally because the, the economies are, are sort of similar. So um, what we do is we try to think about, you know, how, why, how, what have governments tried to do to develop, say, a stock market or a bond market in a particular country, say, like, I don't know, Thailand uh, or uh, Singapore, and what's been successful and what hasn't, and, and really what, what can governments do best to try to facilitate that type of market development. Um, and, and there are some some universalities here. So when we talk about a, a bond market or a stock market in one corner of the world, say, uh, in, in Southeast Asia, there, there really are still similarities and, and lessons to be learned that we can apply in other countries as well, because these countries, you know, that are trying to do get to the same place. So when, when people want to uh, say they want to develop a market, what does that mean? What are they looking? What are the factors they're looking to tell them? OK, it's better than it was before. Yeah, so so it, it's pretty easy to tell, right? Because if you have a, a bond market that's developing, then you you have companies that don't have to go to the banks for all of their 
all of their borrowing needs, they can go to the bond market and issue bonds. So we can look at numbers like just raw issuance uh, of bonds and see if, how much that's taking off. Or, and similarly, we can look at the number of companies that are listed on a stock market, how much stock is being traded actively. Um, you know, one of the problems of stock markets is that the, all these countries start stock markets and uh, they announce them with really big fanfare and, you know, they build them a special stock exchange building and, and uh, try to give uh, incentives for the companies in the country to list. And of course, only a, a few uh, countries or sorry, only a few companies actually list on the stock market and there's virtually no trading on the market. So the market trades, you know, half an hour on uh, one day a week and, and that's about it. And you really can't say that that's a stock market that's really doing anything for the economy because we want the stock market to uh, actually, you know, provide financing for new companies. And that just isn't going to happen in a lot of countries. So with the, uh, you know, the coronavirus situation, what do you see it's done to markets? Has it just put them to sleep and now they're waking back up? Has it, you know, obliterated them? Like, you know, has it changed them? What, what do you see is going on? Yeah, I think I think it really came really came close to obliterating the markets, as you suggested back in March when there was that that huge cash crunch. So all of these companies, uh, both in the U.S. and around the world, realized that there could be really negative consequences for cash flow from the coronavirus. So of course, if you look look ahead six months and you think you're going to be short of cash, the first thing you're going to do is go out and try to borrow more cash. And all of these companies worldwide were scrambling to go to the banks, to tap their credit lines, to go to whatever uh, whatever markets they could to borrow. And those markets were locking up. Uh, literally, um, they, they were running out of, of cash to, to basically to lend. And in the U.S., um, a big part of, of breaking that log jam and getting us back to you know, something closer to normal was the, the Fed stepping in as not, not just a lender of last resort anymore, but what we even call a market maker of last resort, meaning that they actually stepped in and bought companies' bonds. And controversially, they said that they would buy even things that were not investment grade. So the, the markets have come back partly because of the confidence and a lot because the interest rates are so low these days. So if you, if you can find access to the capital, it's a really good time to borrow if you're a company because you're going to be paying super, super low interest rates. Do you think in the U.S. the Fed uh, may actually buy equities, or do you think that it uh, it doesn't need to intervene much from here? Like, what's your sense of you know the market right now? Yeah, the the, the the issue of buying equity is really interesting because in some countries we've seen that happen. For example, the Bank of Japan, in order to to support the stock market and try to jumpstart the economy, has actually engaged in buying equities. It, the equity market in the U.S. right now, of course, is on a tear. It it had a big, it took a big blow in March. And then it's come roaring back. In fact, a lot of people are scratching their heads now because of the amount of uh, gains of the stock market and the amount of trading these days. So I, I, I I'll say this, I would never rule it out, uh, but I don't think it's likely in the current scenario because there's no, really nothing to be gained from the Fed stepping in and trying to support the equity market. It's doing just fine. I, I think there's still, like, there's still likelihood that the Fed will have to step in perhaps and support certain types of bond markets, especially I think ones related to commercial real estate, because that is really uh, falling on hard times, of course, because of the, the big lockdowns and the reluctance of people to go back to work in these office buildings. So what, uh, I mean, what, what key metrics do you want to see change in a certain way? You know, for instance, right now in the U.S. economy and then, you know, uh, the government, uh, are there key metrics that they're looking at that they want to see change or improve? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously they want to uh, see uh, consumer, uh, basically consumption come back. 
uh, because that's 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 the big driver in the U.S. and in many many global markets. They want to see the consumption come back because then that means that people are confident, and they're going to and and that's going to drive uh, the business in turn, right? If you have a consumption increase, then businesses are going to say, okay, now I can actually um, take take some funding and and engage in some investing. I think that's really what they're 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 looking uh, looking for these days. You know, the the unemployment numbers uh, since they're a lagging indicator, they're, they're not looking at that as much. Of course, they're paying attention to that because that that indicates that people are suffering. But the things they're really looking for are some upturns in. Um, not just the borrowing, but really the, the economic activity that you would undertake in general after the borrowing. So, you know, new, new housing starts. Uh, in, actually, I think they're really looking at corporate investments. They're really waiting for companies to start uh, sinking, fun, sinking their money into uh, risky projects that would indicate, you know, confidence about the future. Yeah, you know, what I see that's interesting is like the, the economic dynamic of the states is changing, or I think will change a lot. You know, the some states are opening up, some are just, you know, sitting there. I don't know what they're doing, but <laughs> it seems like, uh, ironically, I guess the biggest financial powerhouse states and areas in the U.S. are sitting there not doing much. And then the other ones that aren't known for that are. So I just wonder if there's going to be a big shift of production and commerce and people living and population and all that. And it would change the dynamic of the U.S. Yeah, it's certainly possible. I think it's if if we continue like this for you know six more months or a year, I can certainly see that start to happen. Uh, the part of the part of the problem, of course, is that so so much of this stuff is uh, you know really um, deeply sunk investments, and you know um, it's not just that that uh, they have the capital invested there in buildings and infrastructure and stuff. There are also a lot of people who are tied to. To working in certain places, I'll, I can tell you firsthand. For example, among my students, you know, they're, they're, part of the reason they want to go into financial services is because they want the excitement of living in New York. So it's it's hard. I, I think it's possible, but it's it's hard for me to imagine that a, a, a transition like that would take place. I mean, if you want an example, what's what's really pretty interesting to me is to watch what's happening in London. Right, London is a huge financial center for Europe, and because of Brexit. There's a there's a big question about what's going to happen to the financial markets in the UK. Are they all going to? Is everybody going to pack up and move to to Frankfurt or to or to Paris? Um, and so far, the the answer is well, a few are, but there's still a lot of of uh, infrastructure in London. There's still a lot of convenience there, and there's still a lot of people who like would rather live in London than in Frankfurt. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, well, that's true in uh, in England. I guess Brexit was the the constant talk, but now it's been quiet on it, you know, because oh, yeah. of the coronavirus. So I, mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, are there any? It's just an interesting example. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the you know a lot of the cases that we that we look at in financial market development, right? This it's not like we can't really run controlled experiments, so we use a lot of case studies. So I I I, I pay a lot of attention to possible examples that are out there in the markets to try to see what we can glean from them. So that 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 strikes me as a pretty reasonable example. Well, again, what are you? So, what are you seeing right now? What's interesting? What interesting dynamics do you see that are going on that you want to talk about? Yeah, um, I think um, just on this on a smaller scale, one of the things that I find really fascinating in the past few weeks is the is the big comeback of stock splits. So, I, in the news, you've heard about Apple splitting its shares four for one. Uh, Tesla, I think, even a bigger split. I think something like five to one. 
And this is an activity that, that companies used to do a lot back in the old days, so to speak. Um, by old days, I mean like you know, 15, 20 years ago. And they don't seem to do that anymore. It seems to have really dried up. And yet, yeah, out of the blue, two big tech companies announced these big stock splits. So in the past, this was a really huge positive signal to the markets that uh, things are going well for these companies. They would split the stock in order to keep the, to the, the shares um, affordable to small investors. The idea is that if you're a small investor, you uh, have to put together a lot of capital to buy the shares because you get the best price on the market by buying 100 shares at a time. So if the company's shares are over 100 bucks a share, you're going to be paying more than 10 grand just to get a, a reasonable uh, stake in the company. So what companies would do is that they would they would split their shares and knock the price down to make it affordable to small shareholders. And companies like small shareholders because small shareholders hold the shares for a long time and they don't complain. Yeah, that's interesting, right? I mean, ideally, rationally, a stock splits, it shouldn't do anything because you exactly. have double the number of shares. But yeah. right. It, um, like, you know, if you think about buying a share of Berkshire Hathaway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you're like, holy, you know, I, yeah, it's crazy. Even Berkshire yeah. B now. Yeah, even the B expensive. shares are so expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So what's really so what's really interesting to me is that in the past in the past ten years, right, we've gotten the, to the point where because of the internet, there's not really a big difference in price between buying one share and buying a hundred shares. So that takes away some of the uh, some of the the reason the rationale for uh, stock splits. And the other thing is that now brokerages are even offering what they call fractional shares. I mean, it, you could go in and buy you know a quarter or even a tenth of a Tesla share. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the exchange traded funds have kind of led the way on that, but that it didn't seem to a lot of economists, including me, that, 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 uh, there was a lot of rationale for stock splits these days, but there may still be a really big rationale for signaling the optimism. So, you know, Apple is signaling, uh, to its, uh, investors, Hey, don't, don't worry. We're still, we've still, we think we still got a lot of upside. And of course, Tesla is, is trying to signal the same thing. Hmm. Um, all right. So what, what other, uh. I and mean, I guess what other main dynamics do you see? It seems like the jobs numbers are improving, you know, each each month that they release them, which is great. Um, I don't know where do you see that we're headed, maybe over the next six months, you yeah, know, economically think, in the U.S. I think we're in for a really rough and uneven recovery. The the problem is that is something I alluded to a, a couple of minutes ago, which is really it's about confidence. The 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 uncertainty in the economy, and so both both financial markets and uh, kind of normal people hate uncertainty. And it really actually puts a lot of cold water on people's activity. And until we can get the uncertainty from the coronavirus and it's spread under control, it's just, it's going to, it's going to cause people to, to uh, really panic at times um, uh, and, and, and throw their plans into reverse. Right. So we had this incipient recovery that was starting to happen in April, May, early June. And then the, the, the cases start to spike again and people are worried that it's a second wave or something like that. And so everybody's plans get thrown into reverse. And it's that kind of uncertainty that's really going to prevent uh, people from uh, engaging in all kinds of activities, wh- whether shopping or investing or companies, you know, uh, borrowing and spending. So th- to me, that that's that says we're in for a lot of we're in for a real rough ride. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, no, it's, maybe it's worse when you, uh, I know it is true, uncertainty is, uh, is terrible. People want people want certainty even if it's bad news is That's what right. I've, I've observed, so, you know. 
Yeah, you know, if you if you if you get bad news, then it becomes a problem to be solved. I mean, if it's if you don't know what could possibly happen, you sit there and your mind, you know, gives you all kinds of terrible scenarios and it, it basically paralyzes you. And that's why it's so bad for, for markets of all kinds. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Um, do you see certainty bearing out in any other countries that you're looking at? You know, marker countries that uh, you think will be like bellwethers of what's going to happen in the, in the near future? Yeah, I think it's really it's really hard to say because um, you know China seems to be they they claim that they're doing really well with controlling the virus, but I don't know if that's credible or not. Their uh, their economy is certainly doing better, uh, but but you know again it's 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 hard to tell. the 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 data of all kinds out of China is 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 not very reliable. Um, we're seeing we're seeing um, a. a uh, a couple of countries in Europe, of course, do do really well. Uh, Germany is doing uh, relatively well because you know they've dealt with the virus and they're more of a manufacturing-based economy, and the manufacturing orders are still holding up fairly well. Um, you know, Sweden, of course, is an interesting case because they never completely shut down, and they're kind of right. middle of the pack in terms of coronavirus experience, but their economy is has suffered significantly less than other countries' economies have because of the virus. So those are a couple of, um, to me, a couple of bellwether, a couple of countries to watch. And, uh, you know, in the case of Sweden, you know, my personal view is that we should have imitated Sweden at least a little bit more than what we did. Yeah, do you think Sweden's even being considered or it's just uh, like kind of being ignored? Yeah, I I think it's really unpopular to talk about Sweden here in the U.S. these days um, because I think a lot of people expected their 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 virus numbers to really get out of control and they and they never did. I mean they're 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 neither at the top nor the bottom of the standing, so to speak. They're kind of middle of the pack and they have done, you know, better than some countries that lock down hard and worse than others, but there's really no, you know, there's no um there's no strong correlation between the the strength of your lockdown and how you fared uh e- economically. And I think that a lot of people don't like that. So we don't talk about it that much. It's kind of terrible to say they don't like that so then they don't talk about it. Yeah, well, I, I I think there's a I think unfortunately that is kind of the the land that we're living in with, with respect to that. Oh, I know, I know. It's it's just you know why why would you cover your eyes and not try to see reality? It's, it's oh yeah, uh, I I agree. I I think um you know especially with you know especially with um just uh, thinking about people doing their everyday normal commerce and business. I think, I think we're starting to see some research in the U.S. that tries to, it's trying to separate the amount of economic. Uh, kind of economic slowdown that it was caused by the government uh, lockdowns themselves versus kind of the voluntary uh, reduction in activity that people would undertake normally. And um, I, I saw some number today that indicated it was kind of 60-40, that the government was responsible for 60% of the slowdown and private activity for another 40% of the slowdown. So part of this is, part of this to me is saying, well, people are, you know, people are, are, are at least fairly smart in terms of understanding what these risks are to them and, and they will react in a you know fairly prudent ways in many cases you know college students notwithstanding of course yeah well what about the media i mean is there you know in that calculation you have government you have private industry you yeah. know the media i don't know they, they seem to uh pull everyone's chain a thousand times a day yeah i, th- I, th- I th- think the- they contribute to it oh yeah i think the media has gotten a lot of mileage out of being pretty alarmist about this whole thing um and that, that, that's too bad. And, and, you know, and a lot of people are kind of trying to take advantage of the situation by touting their own opinions as science. I think I've heard, you know, too many people claim that they're following the science when in fact, they're just trying to use a, a quasi-scientific background for their own opinion. Uh, 
Yeah, just, I don't even know what the science is, but it's a nice term that's used, you know. Oh, oh of course. The, yeah. the science, which I don't know what the science is, but yeah. Well, it has a it has a lot more authority than saying, well, economics says. <laughs> I'd say, uh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So um, when you talk about the recovery being uneven, what's going to be uneven about it, you think? Well, I, th- I think the the pace and also and also w- what what recovers, right? So the pace is going to be driven completely by people's confidence in the news um, about about the virus and whether we've got it under, under control and whether we have a vaccine and things like that. So we, we could see kind of several cycles of speeding up and slowing down. Uh, in, in in terms of the 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 breadth of it, you know, there it's it, one of the things that's been really fascinating to me is seeing um, which industries have been uh, affected in unexpected ways by the coronavirus. Right, um, some some of the um, traditional uh, uh, industries that have traditionally fared poorly in recessions uh, have have done you know surprisingly well. Um, I was reading the other day somewhere that the veterinarian industry is doing really well because everybody is locked down. And so they got pets, <laughs> for example. Um, uh, you know, the other things, of course, are pretty are pretty predictable. Right. The travel industry has been hard hit. So it, it just I think there will be some really interesting uh, and surprising pockets of recovery. Yeah. OK. Um, in terms of the recovery, I mean, length of it. uh I, I, I tend to agree with the folks who say that it's yeah we're 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 going to have this uh, very very prolonged recovery. It's going to to me it's going to look a lot like the recovery from the global financial crisis in the sense it's going to take several years to get back to where we were in terms of overall output. Um, the, the 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 thing that the thing that is, that we haven't touched on that I think is really tremendously important is the number of small businesses that have been absolutely destroyed uh, by oh. the lockdowns. And um, we are just, I just have no idea how we're going to replace those businesses and that level of unemployment or of employment. It's just, um, I think it's, I think we're, we're, we're only beginning to understand the devastation that that is, that that's being, uh, that, that that's being uh, distributed around the country. Yeah. I mean, it seems like we're not really feeling the, uh, the negative effects of the lockdown very much on business at all. There's like a delay, you know, like, for instance, the uh, the trillions that were injected into the market by the Fed, I would think it, it's got to lead to inflation. But then again, there's not many places lately to spend your money. So yeah, exactly. It, when, uh, you know, what's, yeah, what's no. Going so on? yeah, the, the inflation connection is really, really is really a big question mark. Right. So the the you remember the Fed and all these other central banks in response to the global financial crisis did basically the same thing. They bought and bought and bought all kinds of bonds. And um we didn't get inflation out of that because basically the the as in that case as well there wasn't that much that businesses wanted to spend on and so the money actually ended up back at the fed because what happens is the uh, people you know the bond the bonds get purchased the cash gets parked in the bank and the bank basically turns it into reserve deposits at the fed um and that's what's happening still so far but really it's it's like accumulating all of this dry powder and the question mark, the question, as always, is, you know, is something going to ignite the powder? So if we had really a dramatic turnaround, I think if we had a V-shaped recovery, like some people were predicting back in March, that, that could actually ignite some serious inflation. Yeah, I just wonder what's going to happen with the uh, the real estate market. Like, that's still hot right now. I just, I, I can't see that it would uh, continue to be that way in an inflationary environment, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a lot about it's a lot about what alternatives are out there, right? I think one of the things that's driving the the equity market is 
the uh, feeling that there aren't very other good, there are many other good alternatives in terms of investments. And I think that's helping real estate as well, that people are saying, well, you know, stocks are kind of risky, returns on bank deposits and bonds of all kinds are bad. Why don't I, why don't I, you know, make a, take another flyer on the housing market because, you know, people need to rent and, and the, the market seems to be doing pretty well in a lot of urban centers right now. Um, you know, and that that's bolstered, of course, by the low rates. So um, it seems like a, a, for a lot of people, it's another good time to start investing in houses. And you know, I'm even hearing stories about house flipping coming back. Well, I guess what I worry about is, you know, there's there's things that would bolster it, the housing market, for instance. But um, if there's a moratorium on evictions, I haven't heard anything about foreclosures. Is there a moratorium on that? And there, is that hiding there, massive defaults, you know? Yeah. So so there is a moratorium on foreclosures if you have a government-backed mortgage. So if your mortgage has gone through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which which does describe the vast majority of uh, of conform what they call conforming or kind of of normal-sized mortgages, there there is a, there is a moratorium on that. Um, but you're right. There there are definitely some you know people are missing several cycles of rent or mortgage payments and there's only so much that the the system can take and it doesn't necessarily take you know a, a widespread breakdown uh, of of uh, of of defaults and evictions to really have some bad economic consequences so i i i i agree with you that there there's there's potentially looming danger there um i think i think the the rental ecosystem i think is especially troubling i think we tend to forget that um there are a lot of um a lot of individuals and a lot of small businesses that make their that make their livelihood off of rental uh, rental units, and I think that's really um, that's really troubling because I don't we don't know how leveraged a lot of these landlords might be. Yeah, I mean, uh, I wonder how much of the market Airbnb rentals constitutes now, and that also has pretty much evaporated for a lot of places too. Oh, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. That's hidden weakness, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to hit, especially certain, you know, urban centers where there, there have been a lot of Airbnbs and a lot of people did do that kind of, uh, that, that kind of investment, buy an, buy an extra uh, apartment or condo and, and put it up for Airbnb. Yeah. Any other um, hidden weaknesses, like, you know, in terms of customer sentiment, I wonder, you know, like for a while I thought I'm going to start hearing about bankruptcies more and more and more in the news. We started to, and then it's been quiet a little bit. But I just wondered at what point, if we're hearing about bankruptcies, let's say every single day, you know, corporate ones, uh, when it may be a sudden shift in sentiment and saying, oh, "Yeah, we're in trouble," you know. Yeah, I, well, I think I think the to me the one of the important things is is the difference between bankruptcy and liquidation. So bankruptcies are not necessarily bad. Uh, what, what's really troubling is when these bankruptcies lead to, and you know, the, the company's assets being sold and the stores being closed and sold off, and and we are still seeing bankruptcies, especially in the retail space. Um, there were there were uh, kind of a fresh crop last week, but but uh, many of these bankruptcies are still um, uh, they're still trying to put off or avoid liquidation so that they they're offering some hope that they might be might be able to get back on their feet. Um, I think I think you're right. There could be a big overhang of all these companies that um, are going to be actually forced into liquidation. And one of the, one of the side effects, getting back to the broader financial markets and the Fed's activity, is that uh, one of the one of the worries of having the government buy companies' bonds is that it creates so-called zombie companies. I don't know if you remember the 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 phrase they used that about the the zombie banks back in the back in the late '80s. That were basically on government life support, but there's a worry that there there could be a lot of companies out there in the U.S. economy that are taking advantage of low interest rates, 
um, generous purchases from the, the Federal Reserve uh, to, to basically be on life support. And, um, you know, they can't, they can't contribute to growth. Um, they, they just barely kind of limp along and they're basically holding the economy back. Hmm. Um, why would they, uh, I guess they're holding the economy back, what, because they suck up government resources? Or... Yeah, because they, they suck up resources and they don't, they don't grow. They're not going to be able to hire people back, right? If we want the economy to come back, we need, we need businesses to, to take their employees back and, and, you know, even to do new investments and try to grow. You know, the problem with zombie companies is that they're just, they're just floating along trying to, trying to, you know, stay, stay out of bank, you know, stay, stay intact and not grow and not, and not, not do anything new. There's a big problem with zombie companies in Europe, by the way. So one of the legacies of, of their government support from their previous financial crises uh, is, is the creation of these so-called zombie companies. And so that provides a, a, pretty, a pretty stark uh, uh, object lesson there. And I think that's, that's a lot of people are looking at. They're looking at the experience of countries like Italy, in which a lot of companies are still on kind of government life support and worried, worrying that we're creating that situation in the U.S. as well. Is the government of Italy taking like equity stakes in these zombie companies or are they just continuing to fund them and so they can exist? Yeah, they're, they're still basically trying to use government uh, lending support to keep them to keep them going and, and, and moral, moral pressure on the banks to continue to lend. So they, they engage in a lot of what we call extend and pretend. You extend the terms of the loan and pretend that the customer's paying. Oh, so, I mean, uh, instead of nationalizing an, in, an industry like the, uh, the airlines, do you think maybe it's uh, politically more favorable to make it into a zombie industry instead then no one will complain as much? Yeah, and especially it's because if you if you nationalize an industry, you basically have to come up with the money somewhere, somehow, and that's a big political challenge. Um, the, the reason why we get all of these special government lending programs is that they're off the books pretty much. They're, they're so-called off-balance sheet uh, f- financing. Um, oh. And that that's politically that that works politically because you don't have to actually you know say that taxpayers' money is at risk at least not directly. So, um, is there such a thing as a zombie industry? Has it gotten to that point with certain countries and industries? Um, gosh, I, I wouldn't say so. Um, a lot of people, you know, expect um, uh, expect certain industries to become zombies, but I don't. I don't think I don't. I don't know of any examples where that's really happened industry wide. Um, you know, there is there is a there is a question, big question mark about retail uh, in the U.S. and around the world. I mean, it, it, some some folks might be saying that that's kind of a zombie industry. I think I don't think that's quite right. I think we we're, we are seeing some bright spots with certain types of retail, um, and it's about making the making the um, the transition to to both and what you know it's 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 the what they call the multi-channel, making sure you can be there in person, but also uh, handle the internet, the online stuff well. Yeah, I don't see, re- I mean, retail is like such a huge industry. I don't know, I don't see that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean the, you know, again, again, the airlines, maybe they could be a zombie industry or maybe hotels, you know. Well, certainly the, the airlines, the airlines are really highly cyclical. So they, they, they really all tend to fall at the same time. And it may be a case in which they, they all may need to be bailed out at the same time. Um, and yeah, it really depends on what the long-term picture is for uh, the recovery of the travel industry. You're right in that we could go through kind of a zombie phase and, and, and the government would have to basically put its foot down and force some consolidation, um, especially in the U.S. where we, sell, we still have multiple airlines. Although, you know, you, you also worry and wonder if we, if we have too few airlines, what that's going to do to prices eventually. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, any, I, I don't know, like a, so I guess going forward, what, do you have one thought of how it will go? Do you have multiple thoughts? Are you thinking 
I don't know, anything could happen. Like, you know, are you, what kind of scenarios are you charting out and do you have more than one in mind? Um, yeah, I really think that, that multiple things could happen. I think, I, you know, I, like I said a few minutes ago, I think it's so, so I, I'm, um, I'm kind of disappointed in this, but I think consumer confidence and sentiment is so tied to a news about the virus and about the vaccine that we're really going to be kind of dominated by that. And we're going to see these bumps and, and uh, kind of uh, bursts of activity when people are more optimistic about get, getting through this. And then it's going to retrench when people realize that, you know, the vaccine's still a ways away. I, I think really that to me, that's the thing that's going to drive it. And I don't, I don't really know how we're going to, we're going to get out of it. I, my, my hope of course, is that we don't trigger any other types of problems. So some of the, some of the, the default and some of the hidden hidden debt or hidden leverage problems that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. You know, if we get hit with that in addition, um, that could really trigger some 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 real um, e- e- some even deeper recessions and some bigger problems for for the economy. And then, you know, our relationship with China. Do you think uh, it's been a positive? This decoupling. Do you think it's a, a negative? Like, how do you think that's going to affect the dynamics of how the U.S. moves forward? Yeah, I think I I. I think that's been a real mixed bag. I think I think at the at the beginning of uh, this year, when when companies were basically thinking about their diversification of their production, I think that was a good idea to to relocate some some stuff out of China. I mean, the 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 the, the trade relationship for both countries has actually been, I think, on the whole, really good. Um, it it certainly is not perfect. There are certainly problems on both sides, and 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 most people are familiar with what those things are. Um, I just. You know, it just as a matter, you know, now the things that now the relationship between the two countries is really starting to get, for lack of a better expression, kind of nasty. Um, I, I think that tr- trade is not only important for what it does for the economies, but it's also something that keeps that keeps uh, people's tempers from getting out of control. Um, that that you know, we don't want to lose business as well as we don't want to get uh, mired in some kind of a you know, God forbid, some kind of an armed conflict. Um, so I, I think. I, I, I think it's good to diversify our economy a, a bit away from China, but you know it, it's they're, they've got they've got a lot of um, they've got a lot of creative people. They've got a really great industrial base. It just doesn't make any sense in a lot of respects to try to to try to completely get away and decouple from China. Um, it we, we do need to manage that relationship, and you know whether you like Trump or not, one of the things that he has done, I think that's been salutary, is basically. Um, you know, calling attention to the fact that we can we can get tougher with China and get some results because of that. How do you think China sees it? Well, I think I think China is a very China has been, been very defensive. I think they see the U.S. as trying to thwart them from from um, rising to the ranks of a superpower. So I think I think it's hard to um, it's hard to de- it's hard to, to extract that from kind of the economic side of it. So I, I find that, you know, to me, that's a little bit troublesome because um, that, that means, you know, everything that's economic is also automatically political and, and political in a really kind of uh, um, uh, uh, conflict driven way. So, yeah, I think I think the Chinese think that we're the U.S. is trying to stop them from from developing and stop them from becoming you know a, a strong country economically and politically. And, and the two are intertwined. So I, I that 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 I find uh you know, that's one of the things that really complicates this relationship and makes it so hard to manage. Yeah, I remember being around for September 11th, and there was a lot of solidarity, but I don't see any solidarity now at all, you know, with the coronavirus. It's like everyone for yourself. Yeah. Um, we're not going to tell you what to do. You know, like if I'm the governor of the state, 
I've seen recently, you know, we're not going to tell schools how to reopen. They'll do it themselves. And, yeah. you know, the federal government said to the state government, you, you, you do what you want in your state. We're not going to be involved. So economically, there is not much unity. How do you think that's going to play out in the U.S. and maybe worldwide? Because everyone seems to be just like, you know, pulling in and into their shell and just hanging out alone. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think you I think you put your finger on something that's really important. You're you're right. The lack of unity is going to be another one of those things that that's going to make the re- the recovery that much slower. And to me, it gets back again to this idea of uncertainty. You know, if the government would be able to tell us, and they should be able to tell us these days because they're you know they've got a whole bunch of data, where are we really at in terms of the the so-called curve of the infections? You know, I, one of the things that would I would really love to know is. Um, is the, is the increase in infections this summer, is that kind of a normal part of going up this, the so-called curve? Or is it something abnormal that we really should be panicking about? You know, the, the government could do so much to calm people down and restore some of that unity by giving us all some better information that we could use to make better decisions. And, you know, it's, 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 um, I think it's a natural human response to try to take care of yourself in, in cases of really extreme uncertainty like this. And I think the government could, 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 reverse that and restore some more community spirit by, by giving us better information. And also like saying to people, look, it's part of your civic duty to go out and, you know, spend a little, because if you spend a little, if everybody spends a little, then it'll put some people back to work. Well, I mean, information, if I have information, it doesn't diminish your information. Yeah. Why, why is there no, you know, like, you know, people can complain, Oh, why doesn't the U S government, you know, provide guidance. Well, why doesn't the given state government provide guidance? Why doesn't any country in the world providing any guidance? I don't see anyone doing testing, let's say on masks, every kind right. of mask, every kind of distance, every kind of circumstance and providing data. Like everyone's like, oh, we're going to wait for vaccines. But I don't see anyone saying when the numbers change to this, that'll tell us that when the numbers do this, okay, here's the progress. Here's I, all I see is like, Oh, another person died. Oh, the, uh, things are increasing. Oh, uh, uh, we just don't know. It's a, there's no rational response. It's just like the media is like the you know, you know the one that's providing us the most quote unquote information is the media worldwide. Yeah. I don't see anyone stepping up to provide solid information. Nobody. I don't know why. It's strange. Yeah, it is, I find I find it strange also, and I think your point about about masks and about rigorously testing masks is really spot on. Um, they, they, you know, people claim that they do, they, they protect and, and they haven't really done the, the right tests or the amount of right tests. And I think it goes on and on. I mean, one thing that the government could, should be able to tell us these days is, you know, just what, it, what, is, what is a rough estimate of what the true lethality of the virus? We don't even know, right? We're guessing about how lethal the virus is. Is it, you know, is, is it, does it kill uh, half a percent of the people that it infects? Is it is it more than that? Is it less than that? What is it? How is it relative to other diseases? You would think by now that we could get that information out. And that, to me, is really important information because I, I my, my personal view is that so many people are still living in fear that this virus, once they contract it, is going to be, is, you know, going to be highly, uh, highly probable to kill them. And I just don't think that's the case. Yeah, I just don't get it. Like, if you look at Worldometer, you know, uh, there's 21 million cases approximately and 16 million have recovered and 1% are serious. And I don't hear a word about all the people that have recovered. I don't hear a word about, well, you know, on a worldwide scale, it looks like 1% are serious and 99% are not. I don't hear, I just don't hear any of this stuff. And I don't understand if people 
have to worry about their economies if the people that lead countries <laughs> one of their jobs is to keep the economy in good shape so their people don't fall into ruin yeah why wouldn't they take steps to clarify things and reduce yeah. uncertainty i don't know no, i i agree with you i think that that that's that's been a mystery to me as well i think i think it was certainly at the very beginning of the pandemic when we we're so concerned about the virus and didn't know that much about it you certainly you, you want to put uh, make economic considerations secondary but now you know four months into it we're doing so much economic damage that we really need to be able to do reasonable cost benefits about about all of our policies and and we need to we really need to take into better account the the tremendous economic cost that this is imposing on on states on localities on individuals and 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 and, and balance it off of really a, a much better harder estimate of what the true you know medical benefit is yeah if it was just a u.s phenomena i could say okay it's the election or it's whatever but it's not a u.s phenomena it's worldwide yeah it everyone seem, seems yeah. to be sitting there waiting for like some savior to come around it just makes no sense yeah it, 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 it i find it really you know very ironic in in uh in north carolina where i live it's you know it's hurricane season and uh it, the, the contrast between the natural disaster that is a hurricane and the natural disaster that is the, the pandemic is really stark because, you know, we, we know, we, we can see the progress of both. And yet the hurricane people, people take precautions, but they know that they're, they're not in control. They can't control the hurricane. We don't even try, but we think somehow that we're in control of this, of, of, of the virus. And we think that we can control its spread and we think we can control, you know, the number of people who are going to get infected and die. And we, we can't especially because the, the transmission is basically silent. So it, it's just, it, it's another thing that scratches, you know, it's, it's it, it, in my mind, it boils down to hubris. We think we can control this thing and, and we're sadly mistaken. Well, by looking at economics, do you see leaders, are there certain countries that tend to lead with new economic strategies that would follow our countries? Um, wow, that's a great question. There there are lots of different countries doing all kinds of experiments all the time. And, and sometimes you hear about them and sometimes you don't. Um, for, for example, I think one of the, one of the big experiments that it has turned out really well was the experiment in Europe. I think it was really started in Germany during the, their global financial crisis to basically have government support companies that would furlough workers and give them partial salaries rather than completely laying them off when there's a downturn. And that has really cushioned the blow for a lot of companies, and it's kept the relationship between the employer and the employee so they can come back to work really quickly. In the U.S., if you have people get, who get laid off, they basically have to go and reapply for their jobs in many cases. Um, and so so I, I, think, I think that you know, policies like that, we see the, the world laboratory, and we can learn some lessons for that. It would be nice if the U.S. would, instead of having to you know, have a, a short-term extension of unemployment benefits that goes through, has to be renewed in Congress every so often, we think about, could we design a furlough policy like that that might be actually less, uh, less expensive and more effective at getting people back to work? Well, then there's the $600 over current uh, unemployment number, which I've heard was a fixed number because the government's computers aren't up to snuff to have it variable. Is there any credence to that? I, I think there is. I think there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of old equipment in the government, um, and you know one of the problems was actually even just distributing the the money. And again, it gets back to IT problems as well as anything else. Um, you know, there are it, that that affects businesses as well in the U.S., but it certainly affects the government. Um, you know, they don't if they don't get the appropriations to buy new IT stuff, 
then they're stuck with the old standards. And it sounds like they've been stuck with the old standards for quite a while. You know, that's a, that's a problem also, you know, at the, at the Federal Reserve, they're trying to modernize our, our payment system so that we can transmit payments, you know, instantaneously and, and literally catch up with the rest of the world in terms of how we shop and how we pay each other. Um, and, you know, part of their problem is IT as well. They have, we have antiquated IT that's worked, you know, it's worked really well for a long, long time, but maybe it's time to, to upgrade that stuff. So, Kano, how are you going to single-handedly make change here and, and help the world? What's your idea going forward? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to do what I I'm going to do what I can to support my local economy. Get out and try to spend a little bit of money, and I'm going to I'm going to focus on trying to uh, uh, educate the next generation of uh, a future of future consumers and leaders, and ha- try to help those folks do a better job at figuring stuff out. Um, happy to happy to give advice, happy, uh, but. Uh, that's uh that's that's really my that I think really that's my role is teaching and, and writing and, and trying to give some advice and trying to tell people what I think and hopefully convince folks that there's some there's some reason to it. And what's the best way to find out more about your work and get in touch? Well, you can uh, you can uh, find me on online in the uh, economics department. Um, you can look me up through uh, uh, through Duke University or through the great courses. I have several. Uh, uh, courses on financial markets and all, and economics, especially the economics of uncertainty, out through great courses. That's a great place to find me. Um, I, I'm happy to to respond to people's emails uh, as long as I got the time, and, uh, um, and that that's really the best way to get a hold of me. Okay, well, Connell, thanks for coming. I appreciate your willingness to speculate. Very few yeah. are you know, willing to do that, <laughs> so thank you very much. Well, it's been a pleasure. I I, I really have enjoyed our chat. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.